You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again. This is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the September 2022 edition of Editor's Picks. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. This month, we will begin with doctors Zachary Wallace and Daniel Hall reviewing the major findings of their paper entitled The Association of Illness-Related Uncertainty with Mental Health in Systemic Autoimmune Rheumatic Diseases. Today, I'm pleased to be speaking to Dr. Daniel Hill and Dr. Zach Wallace about illness-related uncertainty in patients with rheumatic diseases. Tell you, this is certainly something I knew very little about before I read this very interesting article. So Daniel and Zach, I wanna thank you both for taking the time to speak to me and the listeners. So let us begin. Could you tell me how the two of you got together this study as it certainly, certainly is not a field that is commonly studied in systemic rheumatic diseases? Yeah, I'm happy to take that first question. And thank you very much for inviting us uh, to join you. This is this is really exciting and, and we appreciate the opportunity. Um, so, you know, I, I, I appreciate that comment because it's something that I think many people in the rheumatology space are, are somewhat unfamiliar with. Um, we, Daniel and I are uh, at Mass General in Boston and we're privileged to work in uh, what's called the Mongan Institute, which is a, um, a, a, a an institute that brings together uh, researchers from across disciplines doing a variety of different types of research with the idea that by bringing us all into one place and within this institute, it will sort of feed this, you know, cross-pollination and collaboration. Um, and there's been a lot of sort of efforts and enthusiasm to encourage us to work together. Um, and what when I came to Mongan, one of the things that I was working on at the time was developing an instrument for uh, patients with IgG4-related disease to sort of understand their uh, their disease and, and their symptoms and the burden of those symptoms from their perspective. Um, in the process of doing some qualitative interviews, we were seeing some, uh, some interesting results that suggested that a lot of these patients were experiencing or describing um, uncertainty related to their diagnosis, to their treatment. And at the same time, you know, I think there have been a lot of studies in recent years uh, describing from the patient's perspective, similar concerns or experiences that impact quality of life in ankyovasculitis and, and other systemic rheumatic diseases. But it remains something that was really not well studied. So I ended up connecting with Daniel uh, when I when I presented uh, some of the findings from our qualitative studies and sort of summarized some of the other data out there in the literature, uh, recognizing that he and his group had done a lot of work in this space exploring uh, illness-related uncertainty. In addition to defining it, also thinking about how we can address it and how we can help it, patients sort of manage it better. So that's that's sort of what brought us together. The fact that we were at the Mongan, I was doing this work, uh, Daniel had expertise in this, and it was just a really neat way for us to kind of combine our combine our expertise and, and interests. Want to add anything? 
That's great. I, I think Zach really said it all. I also want to express my appreciation for uh, speaking with us today. And, uh, you know, just to say, I think um, I, uh, I think Zach and I both are very interested in collaborative work. And uh, certainly there's a lot within the field of rheumatology that can be studied through a psychological lens. At the same time, a lot of what we know about psychological coping and resiliency um, can really be unique in different illness populations. And so through this collaboration, I was able to bring some expertise in the measurement of uncertainty and how we might assess that through a survey. Um, but Zach and his team have brought a lot of expertise as well about the patient experience come concerns, which has really made it a rewarding uh, collaboration. The next paper I'd like to bring your attention to examines if sex and clinical outcomes vary by autoantibody status in patients with early RA and is entitled, Male Sex Predicts a Favorable Outcome in Early ACPA-Negative Rheumatoid Arthritis, data from an observational study and is by Cagnato and colleagues. The aim of this study was to investigate if the relationship between sex and clinical outcomes in early rheumatoid arthritis varies by autoantibody status, but you could have guessed that from the title. The investigators used two inception cohorts of patients with, with RA and symptoms of duration of less than 12 months who resided in a southern region of Sweden. Patients were stratified by anti-citrinated peptide antibody or ACPA status and the primary outcome was DAS26 remission at 12 months. A total of 420 six patients were studied, of which 160 were ACPA negative and 266 ACPA positive. The majority, as predicted, were female at 71%, and the remainder, 29%, were male. At 12 months, 27% of females and 24% of males who were ACPA positive with early RA had achieved a DAS remission. By contrast, in the ACPA-negative RA cohort, 16% of females as compared to 49% of males achieved the DAS-28 remission at 12 months. In the ACPA-negative patient group, the adjusted odds ratio for achieving remission at 12 months was 4.79 higher in males, but not in the ACPA positive group with an adjusted OR odds ratio of 1.06. In the discussion, the authors comment on the clinical implications of the study and possible reasons for these findings. Adverse events are common with all therapies. In a paper entitled, Frequency of Symptomatic Adverse Events in Rheumatoid Arthritis, an exploratory online survey 
Hazelwood and colleagues looked at how RA patients view adverse events. The aim of the study was to generate data on the frequency and the impact of symptomatic adverse events associated with RA drug therapy from the patient's perspective. They used an online survey and a total of 560 patients with RA participated. They were asked whether they experienced an adverse, a symptomatic adverse event, which included Outcomes from the patient-reported outcomes version of the common terminology criteria for adverse events. A total of 80 different symptomatic AEs were queried. The mean duration of disease was eight years, and patients were on a wide variety of DMARDs. The, the investigators reported that the number of symptomatic AEs in the past seven days was significant. Only 6% of the patients reported no symptomatic AE, which they related to their medication, while 28% reported 1 to 10, 20, another additional 28%, 11 to 20, and 38% reported greater than 20 ad symptomatic adverse events. When they rated the severity of the adverse events, 28% reported they bought that the side effects bothered them somewhat, 24% quite a bit, and 15% very much. As may predicted, prednisone and NSAID use were associated with the greatest number of side effects. Please read this article and the accompanying editorials. One giving a physician's perspective is entitled, The Patient Experience of Drug Side Effects and Rheumatoid Arthritis, Intriguing Data from an Exploratory Online Survey and is by one of the associate editors of the journal, Dr. John Davis from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, USA. The second is entitled, Taking the Long View, Patients Perceive Benefits and Risks of Treatment as Multidimensional, and is by Shilpa Venkatchaklam and Benjamin Nowal, from the Global Health Living Foundation in the US. The next paper to highlight examines the effect of dactylitis on outcome in patients with axial psoriatic arthritis. And it is entitled, Dactylitis is associated with more severe axial joint damage and higher disease activity in axial psoriatic arthritis and is by Lee and colleagues. The aim was to examine the association of dactylitis with disease activity and the severity of radiologic damage in patients with axial psoriatic arthritis. The authors studied 186 patients with axial PSA, of which 37% had dactylitis and 63% did not. They found that measurements of peripheral arthritis activity 
using the DAS-28, the DAPSA, swollen and tender joint counts, as well as measures of disease activity, such as the SDAS, the BASFI, and the BASDI, were higher in the cohort with as compared to those without dactylitis. Similarly, measures of physical function using the DAPSA and the HAC were higher in the cohort with dactylitis than those without. Similar findings were seen for inflammatory markers. Spinal radiographs were similar between the two groups, although patients with dactylitis had a higher mean sacroiliac joint grade than those without. After reading the paper, you can see how this cohort compares to your patients with axial PSA and have a better appreciation of how the presence of dactylitis can alter the outcome of these patients. Macrophage activation syndrome is a potentially life-threatening complication of both pediatric and adult rheumatic diseases. In a paper entitled, An Evidence-Based Guideline Improves Outcomes for Patients with Hemophagocytic Lymphohistiocytosis and Macrophage Activation Syndrome, Taylor and colleagues compared the outcomes of patients with Macrophage Activation Syndrome, MAS, or Secondary Hemophagocytic Lymphohistiocytosis, or Secondary HLAs, before and after the implementation of evidence-based guidelines. They compared 10 patients treated before the establishment of these guidelines to 17 patients after the use of this guideline. Approximately one-third of patients in both groups had an underlying rheumatic disease, and the majority of patients, it was felt that an infection triggered MAS. Importantly, they found that there was a statistically significant reduction in mortality from 50% before the implementation of the guidelines to 6% after, which results in a risk ratio of 8.5. The discussions, the authors explore reasons for these findings. The authors felt that key components of the guideline included efforts to increase awareness of HLH MAS among the house staff consultant services by the use of education materials, conferences, and electronic order sets. This is best illustrated by an increase in referrals for consideration of MAS from 34 patients prior to the guidelines as compared to 57% after the guideline initiation. The length of time studies was similar between the two groups. There's significant change in treatment as only 6% of patients after initiation of the guideline were treated with the HLH 2004 protocol as compared to 20% before implementation. This was associated with a significant increase in the use of IVIG, 
pre and post guidelines. This paper describes other important improvements post-guidelines as well as changes in individual medication use. The guidelines used in this paper are available, as is the paper, online at our website at www.jroom.org. The image in rheumatology this month describes a previously healthy four-year-old boy who presented with recurrent ankle swelling over many months. It usually resolved within three to five days. The swelling was accompanied by recurrent small tender lesions on his upper and lower extremities, which were non-blanchable. An x-ray of the right ankle showed a effusion of the ankle, as well as irregularity of the talus and areas of subcortical lucency. Laboratory evaluation showed a prolonged PTT with an undetectable factor 8 level. A diagnosis of severe hemophilia A with hemarthrosis with, was made. This case highlights that although severe hemophilia tends to occur much younger children, it can occur in later childhood. The article this month in Panorama, 360 Degrees of Rheumatology, is entitled The Prism of Inequality, Health Disparities in Rheumatoid Arthritis. Dr. Elizabeth Pennebat gives her perspective an insight into what it was like to have been diagnosed with JIA at age five in the U.S. where she had access to DMARD therapy as well as other ancillary therapies. She compares this to a recent immigrant to the U.S. with RA who came from an underdeveloped healthcare system and while in the U.S. did not have access to government assistance. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and encourage you to read not only my highlighted articles, but all of the articles in the the September 2022 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in the print or online editions. The online edition is available at www.jroom.org. Please watch my interview with the author this month, but also previous months if you have not seen them. They are available for viewing at the website and on YouTube. If you have any comments or questions on these highlighted articles or any articles in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.org. I encourage you to listen to next month. October edition of Editor's Highlights. Thank you.